Thanks so much for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a code for Sherm Credit. Enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker, here with... Hi, everybody. Adam Compton, excited to be with you today. Hey, everybody. Jared Bocutz here with you as well. And we are very excited for our guest today. Robin Piper joins us. She is actually a new teammate with Brown & Brown. Um, She's part of a recent acquisition that we had. We're thrilled to have her. She works with some very large national employers, truly one of the smartest people in the benefits world that I know. So extremely grateful to have her with us. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Robin. Do you want to do a quick introduction? So Robin Piper with Piper Jordan, a uh, new acquisition as of May 2021, and just thrilled to be here today. I've been, had an opportunity to meet many people within Brown & Brown, and honestly, you're an exceptional group of individuals, so thrilled to be here with you today. And Robin, as we have a lot on the business side, what's one thing about you that's non-business that you'd love to do when you're not taking over the world in insurance products? <laughs> when do I have time to do anything else <laughs> except for employee benefits? <laughs> I am a lover of travel. I was just telling Vanessa that I am going to Egypt in a few weeks. So uh, I, I like to go to very random places around the world. So there you go. Is that a bucket list item to go there? Yeah. Yeah. Still have the bracelet around my wrist from going to Bhutan. So yeah, I like to go to places that no one else really likes to go to. So there you, there you go. There's your answer. Perfect. <laughs> She likes to take the road less traveled. Certainly, she does so in very blaze-trailing ways, or trailblazing ways, I should say. Uh, when it comes to all things upmarket employee benefit consulting, we have been talking with Robin at length at kind of the general themes that she's been seeing across her broader block of client base uh, and community outreach education, and certainly think we've got a lot of fun things to talk about today. Might you give us a heads up to what you're focusing most of your energy on today? You know, I always introduce our firm as a company that is hired to create headlines. So I think that the best way that I can describe this is if you were to take us back to the day that the ACA was passed, that was a different headline. That was a headline that that we were being hired to reduce fear. What did it mean to be in compliance? What did it mean to reduce the footprint of enrollment? I mean, that was a long time ago. So back then, employers were terrified of what it meant to bring on employees at 30 hours. They were terrified of removing the grandfathering um, rules. They were terrified of age 26. That seems like a lifetime ago. Nobody cares about that anymore. So headlines today are, again, it's a different definition. So if you're speaking to a Fortune 100 employer, you may have a benefits team that wants to create a headline to create awareness at the C-suite that they've driven value to retain employees or to bring them back to a 3-2. If you're speaking to a large manufacturing employer, they want to create headlines. Maybe they're trying to reduce their benefit spend by 10%, but they want to also reduce the deductible. I mean, the bottom line is that I think by today's standards, employers really want it all. They want premier benefits. They want a premier experience. 
and they also have budgets that they want to be conscious of. And it's a real balancing act. And so the way that we deploy the lens through which we look, and it really hasn't differed even you know, if I, if I were to go back to the days of the ACA, I still have the 10 pillars that I look through, but they've just varied. They've grown. They've become thicker, if you will. The lens is a thicker lens through which I look through. That the, the discussions that we have are around how do we create benefits that are worthy how do we get away from high deductible? How do we get away from coinsurance plans? How do we reduce the out-of-pocket maximums? How do we look at social determinants of health? I think to some degree, we've created the social determinants of health. We've actually put the low-wage worker in a position to where they don't know how to use their benefits. So I know we were speaking a little bit earlier today, Vanessa, regarding food deserts. And so if we do a food desert study, we're looking at individuals that sometimes there is a 10 times incidence of insulin usage in food deserts for low wage workers that don't have access to quality food. And of course, that could be a podcast in and of itself. So what I'm hearing from my employers is solve for health disparities, solve for racial inequities, solve for low wage plan design, solve for creating our unique definition of a headline. Keep my employees happy. If I'm hearing you correctly, Robin, you are working towards keeping HR happy and keeping CFO happy, which is, I describe one of those challenges that employers have a hard time getting their head around how they do that. How do we have these rich benefit plans that you described and keep the CFO from breathing down their neck because the balance sheet is not balancing any longer. How do we do that? What are some things that you are helping your clients and customers focus on to make that happen? Well, I I can't remember a meeting where I didn't walk in or sit down where I have not stretched out my arms and I haven't said, okay, do we want a highly disruptive plan or do you want to, where do you want to be in the continuum? Unless you are the biotech firm that I have where the average age is 31 and you're incredibly healthy and your loss ratio is running or the, the, the equivalent of a loss ratio is, is running you know, in the 70th percentile and we can add all of these rich benefits and I can have low co-pays, they really don't, they, they don't have to make tough decisions. I can continue to add every year. If you're in a position to where you have the, the normal demographics within the United States or you happen to have a bad year, because everybody's going to have a bad year, even the biotech firm is going to have a bad year. And if you're that CE, CFO that's been presented with a bad year because of COVID, for example, you're trying to get out of the pandemic, they typically you can't have it all. It's very difficult to be able to have a broad network plan and a broad formulary and a broad network pharmacy network and low deductibles and low copays. You have to typically give and take somewhere. Now, I always walk through their risk tolerance. Are they willing to have a value-based plan design? Are they willing to have a performance network? Are they willing to get rid of the brand formulary driven formulary, if you will? Are they willing to get rid of brand insulin? Are they willing to get rid of the almost, you know, psychological addiction to rebates? Are they willing to go more generic? Because if they are, 
then they can transform their plan. But that doesn't come without disruption. So you have to walk down all of the layers of strategies with them and to see what their tolerance is. And there's a lot of modeling that goes into any transformation model. And, and this really can't be a discussion that you're having with them in August. I had a 30,000 life case the other day, literally the other day, that asked me if we could go out to market on pharmacy. Now, don't get me wrong. I would love to bring on that group. But the honest answer was no. No, you don't want to go out to market as a 30,000 life case. You don't. I can take a look at the contract now. I can do an opportunity analysis. But to do a proper pharmacy RP is really a six-month process. So, you know, you have to make the CFO happy and the benefits team happy by showing them dozens and dozens of strategies that walks through the risk continuum. And you have to get into who they are, just like you talked about a week or two ago, Jared, which gets into the personas. Yeah. Who are they as a company? And that is a very deep discussion. So one of those things that you brought up there, Robin, was the high performance network. And, you know, we think of networks historically, if they're broad, I love that term, they, they are tweaking or shrinking or moving to a direction uh, from the insurance care's perspective of these high performance networks. But it often seems like what the insurance provider is claiming is high performance isn't always high performance. Am I... Am I Jumping off the gun a little bit too much, or is that? What do you mean, Adam? You're saying that every network's not high performance. <laughs> I'm just saying that I don't want to have shock anybody, but sometimes <laughs> the insurance company might not have your strategic intent in mind. Um, how do you validate that, Robin? What's the point where we go back and say we're listening? We want to know that we've identified cost as an issue. Maybe we're willing to take some risks, but when we start leveraging one versus the other, what are the things that are really going to separate these high performing networks so our employers can just listen for the right things. Oh, gosh, there's so much to say about this. But you no, know, I, I, I do not believe that the one pager you get back in a repricing that says that we're the best is what you should take into consideration. Cost of care is a real discussion. It's a very difficult measure to prove. That gets into data analytics. I am in a very unique position by... Um, we have a data warehouse. I demand files. I demand that the vendors provide me with extra fields by which I have been able not to completely crack the code. I do not want to mislead the audience that I've been able to come up with, you know, the secret sauce completely. Do I see build to allowed with certain vendors that are my best partners? Yep, I do. I have I have special contracts with a couple of the vendors and I'm able to see where their weak spots are. Other vendors are not as transparent, which I hope we get, I hope eventually transparency and coverage. Yeah. Eventually the machine readable files are 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 worthy. Right now it's not providing us much value. Now you are correct and and, and without naming vendors. Just because they say that they're, they're the best and they have the deepest discounts, discounts mean relatively nothing. Discounts off of what? $100 or off of $150? We have to have a more intelligent conversation regarding what are the negotiations and what is the value? Because are we having doctors that have repeat surgeries? Are they throwing people out of the hospital? What is the... What, what is the use of the emergency room? Are, is it paid for performance or is it fee for service? 
This is such a deep conversation. It's a really important conversation. I am a believer in pay for performance. Now, we are not robust enough in the country for, to have all of our employers on pay for performance. But when I can get into a robust and proven system for pay for performance, is it transformational? Yes, it is transformational. And you have to get into very specific dis, dis, uh, uh, zip codes in order for it to be transformational. And there are fantastic zip codes throughout the country that have specific healthcare systems that very much believe that their pay for performance system is transforming they're not just transforming costs, it's saving lives. And I'll give you an example. There is a client that I put on to a pay for performance as much as I could within four zip code regions within the United States in 2017. In those four zip codes, I did see a 25% per member per month decrease measured. Right now it is held steady at about, well, right now we're at a, down about 12 points since 2017. I was leaned in on by the new CHRO who wanted to know what that particular medical vendor was doing for his high, basically risk members at the beginning of the pandemic. Now this is a national group. Remember four zip codes are in a, a, for in a high performance network. The hospital systems in that high performance network were within one week able to tell me what they were doing for those high-risk members. And it was unbelievably impressive how they had already reached out to all of the diabetics because those individuals, they were engaged in primary care, yeah. right? They were already yeah. engaged in a primary care model. They were already engaged as a low-wage low worker. Those individuals were already in a very coddled system. So again, this is a very, very, very... Um, this, this in and of itself could be its own podcast, but broad networks cannot be benchmarked against a narrow, well, narrow is a dirty word, against a performance network. And not all performance networks are going to be the same. You know, Aetna rolled out a performance network with Rush Hospital that lasted for six months. Established tried and true performance networks that are pay for performance are transformational if you can make them work, but they can be noisy and disruptive, but they fit a particular model. High cost claimants, millennial workers, you can, I keep saying this word, you can transform your benefit plan if it fits into the persona of that particular employer. Sorry, I went a little long there. <laughs> Very fair, because you are causing disruption Correct. Right along the way. I geek out on this kind of stuff because <laughs> I think that for so long we meaning the industry has just accepted the status quo. We've just accepted this is what's going on. We have a system that's not ideal, but it is what it is. So let's just make the most of it. But individuals like yourself who challenge the status quo, and that's what we pride ourselves on as consultants. To me, that's what a good consultant should do is challenge the status quo and find ways to disrupt the market. And what you're describing is, is doing that. And when you disrupt the market, you can create change. We, we clearly need some change in different ways within the U.S. healthcare system. What you're describing with high-performance networks, value-based contracts, are ways that you can disrupt the market and create change. And I, I, I love it because the goal is not just to reduce cost. The goal in high-performance network is the performance that it 
creates better outcomes. Um, can you talk for just a minute about how you're not only reducing costs, but helping people to create better outcomes and create a healthier population for these employers? Well, if I'm deploying these strategies, the goal is to create trust in the healthcare system. So it's pretty easy to see if we're, if we're running a correct analysis, it's pretty easy to see that low-wage workers are not using designs where there's high deductibles and high out-of-pocket maximums. I mean, we ran an, you know, the, the best case scenario is I was finally able to get through an employer about six months ago. I showed them that somebody who had been working with them, and so tipped employee, but what ran through this the, the census files is this employee working with them, by the way, since 1989, on their census file making $18,000 a year, had a claim that the out-of-pocket maximum, he spent $12,000 a year, $12,000 a year, W-2, $18,000. I'm sure he had tipped wages, but does it really matter? Are we really gonna use that as an excuse for the fact that he he had a, had a claim that was $12,000 a year? In my opinion, that's unacceptable. This gentleman was not seeing, he had delayed care had delayed care. My personal view, the way that I've trained the people that work on my team, is that our low-wage design is flipped. It's a flipped model. We don't do a lot of HMO work. Of course, there's always the Kaiser slice. If we're working on a national account. Sometimes there's just the Kaiser slice. Yeah. We have to have it. I try to get away from Kaiser, but I don't find them to be a good partner when, when we have um, uh, chronic patients. But on low-wage design, all day long, do we really, are we really concerned about disruption if we create trust? And that trust, I work very, very, very hard to have preventive medication at, at no cost, to have even primary care visits at zero if we can, if not $10, no lab costs. I want that day-to-day -to, -day to be relatively free for as much as possible. I want to remove that barrier and I want them to have very, I'll run that geo at a much lower threshold because I want them to have very close um, access points. So I worry a lot when I'm working within rural care. So rural, that's a whole nother conversation as well because rural healthcare or inner city care has its own set of, of disparities. So we work then in terms of how can we get a better virtual care model or open up travel and lodging to individuals with rural health care in particular for oncology treatment. So in those in that case, Jared, we're flipping it. It used to be in the ACA, put in the $3,500 deductible with the outrageously high out-of-pocket maximum. We don't allow that anymore if we can get the CFO and team to listen because I can show them that I can get rid of that model and it can cost the same. Or less sometimes too. How about that? Sometimes if less. If I can mitigate large cost claimants and have all my preventive find it before, oh my goodness, did we just win and I've got a happy employee. That's well, you've reduced the delay of care, right? right? And enterprise risk associated with that delay of care when they're showing up for work. They're not their best selves, right? And right. or work comp losses can be escalated. We tend to see in that same, right, opposing model. That group that I spoke to you about that I described from 2017, that is a very low wage um, employer and very inner city and predominantly non-English speaking. 
they have some of the richest benefit plans out of all of my employers, but we created that. We pulled them out of Kaiser, HealthNet, and Three Sigma plans. We put them into as many high-performance plans as well, network. We put them into a high-performance network. That, again, shaved off an incredible amount of cost, and we have been able to keep them in these plan designs for years. But again, it did not come without a lot of disruption. Removing 75% of their population from Kaiser was not a small lift, I can assure you. But the plans are better, and they're engaged in their health. And I guarantee their employee value proposition is much stronger than ever before. And they pay less. Once they trail, you know, trailblaze on that front. Yes. I love it, Robin, because I can sense the passion that you have for this, the passion that you have to not only transform healthcare, but you're transforming people's lives, right? That's we do what we do to help people. And it's it's fantastic to to have opportunities to create access to care. Um, I've shared with the podcast in the past my own delay of care story. And I won't get into the details because no one wants to hear about my stomach getting cut open, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's real. The delay of care situation yeah. is real and it's a problem in America and it's scary how many people put off, put off, put off, and then it becomes catastrophic and maybe even to the loss of life because people have that barrier to care. We know that the number one barrier to care in the U.S. is cost. And how do we create easy access to care? And you're describing ways that employers can do that. Employers can do things regardless of size, whether it's the 30,000 life group you talked about or the 250 life group have control over certain aspects of your plan design. And you can eliminate those barriers to care. You can have access to some of these things that Robin's talking about with the high performance networks, even as a 250 life group. You can find ways to eliminate those barriers to care and create better access so that your people can become healthier. And if you do it right, you're gonna do it in a way that can manage cost and reverse trend or flatten trend. Yeah, and I don't know if I completely answered your question a, a couple of minutes ago. You still have to educate your employees on, on what is happening. And the group I referred to that we pulled away from Kaiser, I do have an advocacy team that did go on site to educate these people. And it's not that, you know, employers can't spend the time to do it themselves. You still have to you have to touch your people. You have to spend some time, you know, communicating at that fifth grade reading level. I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, I could use written communication at like a second grade reading level at this point in time. There's so much that comes to us in, in email and, and, and in written form these days that it's, it's overwhelming. We need small nuggets of information in terms of how we all can access resources easily. And, and, and that's really, you know, communicate at somebody's level and, and give them the ability, teach them frequently teach them frequently. We say that all the time. I mean, equally important to design structure. Jared talks a lot about disrupting the market and, and being true consultants, trying to change the outcomes. But equally important to structure and design is truly that that communication threshold and platform in which you engage. And it, it's different things to different audiences. You talk about personas, right? Mm -hmm. And I would challenge all of our listeners today to really think deeply about who it is, right? You must deploy those communications to. Are you creating equity when it comes to the ability to right? Retain and truly understand the content you're attempting to deliver. Those are all things that we are grateful to be able to specialize in and deliver around each and every day. But an, a really important step that many populations are gravely overlooking. 
That said, guys, that I think was about the quickest uh, 25 minutes we've ever had. And I would love nothing more than more time with Robin and her passion clearly exudes strong, uh, excited about where we're all going together as Brown and Brown partners and what she is doing and we all are able to deliver in the field each and every day to help control that spend. More fun to come, I'm certain. If you're well, if you're interested, we'd love to have you back uh, for this great group of listeners and we appreciate you and your time today. I appreciate you. You're my favorite team. Thank you very much for having me. Now everyone knows why I called her one of the smartest people there are. In- <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if you don't have hope that there's ways to do things the right way, uh, you're silly because there's ways to fix it, ways to control costs, and ways to make it better. So, Robin, we really appreciate that expertise. Just absolutely amazing. I appreciate the invitation to be here. You guys are great. Thank you. That concludes yet another episode of The Benefits Breakdown. Thank you all and talk soon. Thank you for listening to The Benefits Breakdown. This episode, in combination with our previous episode titled Open Enrollment, the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, is eligible for one SHRM credit. That code for SHRM credit is 22AS9XZ. That's 22-A as in Alpha, S as in Sierra, 9X as in X-Ray, Z as in Zulu. Remember, this code expires after December 31st of 2022. So thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And we'll see you next time on the Benefits Breakdown. 